Turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. We're starting a new series tonight, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. As you find the gospel of Mark, let's stand together and let's pray and prepare our hearts to be in God's word. Mark chapter 1. Father, we stand in in awe of you, in reverence of you. As As a church family right now, we acknowledge your presence with us. We acknowledge our need for you. As we look afresh at your son Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, would you be gracious to give us a fresh insight of Christ, a deeper understanding, a closer walk with you, We know the power is in the Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit, you are God, you're a member of the Trinity, and we welcome you here right now to bring refreshment, to encourage the weary soul, to bring help, conviction. So as your sons, as your daughters, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. This week, we had an opportunity to go to a staff retreat. It was a really blessed time, and our theme was revive, kind of piggybacking off of the end of Habakkuk, that God would revive us in in his work. And I won't mention the retreat center that we were at, but I noticed that there was nothing of Christ there. There was not one Bible verse on the wall. There was no mention of Jesus. There was no understanding of who he is. I read their little brochure, and I know a little bit of the history of the the retreat center, and it was donated uh, to a church in town in about 1940, but has left its roots it's, it's left its heritage in the Lord and, and in Christ. Their mission statement was understanding the transcendency of nature. That was their mission statement. How does a Christian organization, a, a retreat center, get to the place where you walk in and there is no statement of Christ? No commitment to Christ. I think it happens easier than we might understand. And it can happen in our lives as well. Think about when you first got saved. You first came to the understanding of who Jesus is. How important was Christ to you? How important was Christ to me? And over time, our tendency will be to drift from an awe of Christ. And maybe when you heard me announce that we were going through the gospel of Mark, you went, oh, another gospel. I've been through the gospel of Mark. I know the gospel of Mark. I can tell you these stories in my sleep. But the very key for us is always growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not just the head knowledge. It's the heart knowledge. It's the intimate and personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is to have supremacy in our lives. 
He created all things, and everything is created for him. I'm created for him. You're created for him. We're told that he is the image of the invisible God. A lot of people have a hard time with the Father. They appreciate Jesus, but they say, I don't really relate to the Father. But Jesus is the express image of the Father. As we study the life of Jesus over the next few months, I want you to understand you're looking at the Father. To the point where Jesus said, if you behold me, you behold the Father. You're you're looking at the Father. Jesus is the head of the church. I hope you know that and believe that and you're looking to Jesus. You're not looking to men. You're not looking to women. You're not looking to Rocky Mountain Calvary. That your faith is in Jesus Christ. He is the head. He holds all things together. So it's so very important for us to take time to focus on Christ, to get to know him better. My prayer for all of us is that we would have a deeper understanding of Christ in the weeks to come. Let's give a little bit of background to the Gospel of Mark. Four Gospels. Why are there four Gospels? Because each Gospel focuses on something different about Jesus. It has a different theme. The book of Matthew focuses on Jesus as the King, the King of Kings. The book of Mark focuses on Jesus as a servant, him coming as a suffering servant. Luke gives us Jesus as the perfect man, the ultimate man, the God man, focusing on the humanity of Christ. John focuses on Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. If you'll notice in John, John doesn't feel the need to record all of the events in Christ's life. He only records a handful of miracles to point out that Jesus is the Messiah. The book of Mark is the briefest of all of the Gospels, 16 chapters. It's the shortest. It's the Twitter feed of the Gospels. You'll find this word over and over in the Gospel of Mark immediately, immediately, immediately. I don't want to take away from the pace in which Mark is written. This is not going to be a one-year study. We're going to go through the book of Mark at a fairly rapid pace because that is how he's writing. And what he's focusing on is the events leading up to Jesus going to the cross. He's going, bam, 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 Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. And I think if we go too slow, we're going to miss the heart in which Mark is written for us. In the gospel of Mark... It's more focused on the actions of Jesus than the teachings of Jesus. It's what he did and how people responded to what he did than the teachings of Christ. So it's a different view. It's a different angle, the Gospel of Mark. Who wrote this book? Well, you'd go, it has to be a guy named Mark. Yes, we do believe that it was a man by the name of John Mark. But we don't know for sure. It doesn't say in this Gospel who was the the human author. Why do we believe that it was John Mark? There's some good reasons why. John Mark wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. We're first introduced to him in the book of Acts. He's Barnabas's relative. Barnabas wants to take John Mark on a missionary journey with Paul. Paul says, absolutely, let's do it. John Mark's a young man, and somewhere in this missionary journey, he decides to go home. We don't know if he's homesick and he's missing his family, We don't know if the hardships got too great. He didn't like the chips, didn't like the diet that they had there as missionaries. But he says, 
I'm going back. On the next missionary journey, Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. John Mark, let's bring him along. What does Paul say? Not on your life. That guy's not going with me again. He left me high and dry. The Bible tells us there's a sharp dispute between Barnabas and Paul. These great friends, these partners in ministry, they split ways and they never come back as a missionary team. Paul picks up Silas. Barnabas goes forward with John Mark. God's good. Ministry's expanded. God didn't lose sleep over it. But that's where we're introduced to to John Mark. What I think's amazing about this is the fact that it would have been really easy for John to stop serving the Lord, John Mark, wouldn't it? He's like, well, the Apostle Paul wrote me off, so I think that's about it for me. And failure is really hard to deal with, isn't it? It's hard in my life. It's hard, hard in your life. And I've really had a great appreciation for John Mark because he continued to serve the Lord. At the end of Paul's life, Paul says, would you send John Mark to me? Because he's profitable to me in ministry. Please hear this. I need to hear this. Don't let failure define your life. We're all going to fail. And it's so hard in the midst of that failure when we do things that we never thought we'd do, say things we never thought we'd say, give up in areas that we never thought we would give up in, is to remember that God's love's unconditional, that he uses the weak and the foolish things that confound the wise, get back up, keep following the Lord. Early church history tells us that John Mark became the assistant to Peter. He heard these things from Peter and he wrote them down and we get the gospel of Mark. This is Peter's account of the eyewitness of Jesus Christ, which makes sense with the flavor of the gospel. We can picture Peter saying, I'm not going to waste words. Peter's a man of action. So he's like, here it is. Bam, 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 bam. I'm going to give it to you. You better, you better stay awake. This is a gospel of grace because it's given to us by John Mark. Also because it's given to us through Peter. You know a little bit about the life of Peter probably. Really struggled as a disciple. Denied the Lord. God forgave him, restored him. And he continued on with the Lord as well. Maybe that's exactly what you need to hear tonight. That's why God brought you to this service this evening. Because you failed. I've failed. And we've saying we've got to press on. We've got to keep going. Keep walking with the Lord. Because God will pick you up and he'll use you just like he did with John Mark and just like he did with Peter. Who's the first reader of this gospel? I think that's important to really understand a book of the Bible. As again, early church history believed that John Mark wrote this while he was in Rome to the church of Rome to Gentile believers, which makes sense. He's writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. The internal evidence points to that as well because he's explaining... Jewish customs in this letter. So if he's writing to Jews, why would he exp- explain Jewish customs? So we don't know for sure, but we believe them to be the first recipients of, of this letter. So let's begin. We're going to cover the first 20 verses tonight. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It says, I'm going to start at the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel. Gospel is good news. May we never forget that. Sometimes we're approaching people with Jesus and the look on our face is that we're approaching them with bad news. 
This is good news. God loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He's describing the beginning of the gospel, the son of God. He gives us the theme of the book in verse one. This is going to be confirmed over and over through this gospel that Jesus, in fact, is the son of God. It's confirmed by the father, most importantly, in our text tonight. You'd think maybe that the beginning of the gospel would start at the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, but that's not the case, verse 2, as it is written in the prophets. The gospel is in the Old Testament. That God would send his son. It's foreshadowed. It's told specifically in the Old Testament. The gospel was not God's last-ditch attempt to try to save humanity. I can't believe Adam and Eve sinned. If if we would have known that they would have sinned, we wouldn't have created those knuckleheads. God knew when he created Adam and Eve, gave them a choice to eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they would do. God says that it was determined before the foundations of the world that Christ would be slain. It's always been in the heart of God to send his son. He quotes from Malachi 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is John the Baptist. This is the prophecy about John the Baptist. My messenger is going to prepare the way. John the Baptist is going to prepare the hearts and minds of people for Jesus Christ. If you look at how many years are from the prophecy of Malachi to John the Baptist, it's 400 years. John the Baptist's voice in the wilderness breaks 400 year silence. God says, I'm sending my son. There's going to be a messenger that's going to have the spirit of Elijah. 400 years of silence. Silence does build anticipation. Maybe you have a friend or a family member that has that gift of silence, you ask them a question and they give you the long pause. By the time they answer, you've already answered. You're like, it was a bad idea. I never should have asked, right? Silence can be hard to deal with. God waits 400 years till this point when John the Baptist comes to prepare people's hearts and minds for Jesus. What really stood out to me in this verse is my messenger. John the Baptist was God's man. He'd surrendered his life to the Lord, to the things that God wanted him to communicate, and God says he's my messenger. So Malachi 3.1 is quoted, and then Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist would fulfill this being out in the wilderness, calling people to repentance. It says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. This is the idea of a forerunner. If there was a king that was coming into an ancient city, they would have a forerunner that would prepare the way. Make sure the road was smooth as possible, sometimes even improving the road, letting people know, look, the king is coming. You need to be prepared for for his coming. And that's what John the Baptist was doing as he was preparing the way for Jesus, preparing his way, making his way straight, preparing for him to come. 
We look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I think we have a similar ministry to John the Baptist, is that we should be preparing people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Saying, are you ready for his coming? We're preparing the way of the Lord. He, he is coming, but we want to prepare people's hearts. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We can learn a lot from John the Baptist, from his ministry, from the way that he went about it. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. It's different from our baptism today as believers. When we get baptized, we're not being baptized for salvation. That happens as we trust in Christ. We're being baptized to proclaim that Jesus is our Savior, being obedient in the waters of baptism. We're identifying with what's already taken place. We're buried with Christ and risen in newness of life. This was a baptism where people were saying, I realize that I'm a sinner and I'm repenting of my sin. It was a baptism of brokenness over their sin that then would prepare their hearts for for a savior. The message of John the Baptist was repentance. Declaring the holiness of God, pointing out sin. You need to turn from your sin, turn away from the sin, and prepare your heart for the Lord. Repentance means a change of mind and a change of direction. Is repentance something that we are to declare today? Was this something that just John the Baptist declared? Or is it something that we're to declare as well? John the Baptist declared repentance. Jesus declared repentance. The disciples declared repentance. Repent and believe. Repentance isn't a work for salvation. It's not this question of how much do you have to repent in order to receive God's grace because then it would be a work. It's a heart thing. And I think it happens to every believer When you came to receive Christ as your Savior, there was also an awareness that I'm a sinner. That I've sinned against God. I've wronged Him. And there's the weight of that sin, but then there's the overwhelming reality of God's love, that He died for my sin. And He's forgiving me of my sin. If we don't realize that we're a sinner, then what are we getting saved from? Are Are we joining the country club or... Did we sign up for Villa Sports or the YMCA or like, what's the deal here? Well, I I don't get this. We have to understand that we've sinned against God, that we're repenting and receiving the grace of the Lord. So John's message was repentance. Then all of the land of Judah and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is John's impact. It gives us how wide of a move of God this was. Judah is southern Israel. Sea of Galilee is northern Israel. People were coming from all over Israel out into the wilderness to be baptized. This makes no sense, does it? Who who goes out in the wilderness? This is not Colorado wilderness. This is not Rocky Mountain National Park. This is you might die out there. It's hot, it's nasty, there's no water, there's no trees, there's no shade. It's God moving and God stirring, touching the hearts of people, and the whole nation of Israel is is impacting. I want you to catch this. When Jesus starts his public ministry, people were prepared. People were ready. They were looking for the Messiah. 
There was a mass move of God where they understood that they were sinners and they were repenting of the sins to the point where they were going out in the wilderness to be baptized. John must have had a, a sore forearm and bicep. Like, like he didn't have any recruits. It wasn't like John the Baptist Jr. that got to do this as well. Or a couple of his disciples. is is just John out there every day baptizing, preaching this message of repentance. An incredible impact. Verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So we've seen John's message, his impact, but now we see his approach. It's authentic and simple. Homeboy was eating organic before it was cool. (laughs) I'm just out here enjoying the honey, eating the grasshoppers, being who God's made me to be. Got this crazy leather going on, this big beard, my long hair, but it's who he was. And he keeps it simple, and he stays true to who God made him to be. God has made you you, and you're going to be the best at being you. Amen? And a lot of times we're not true to who God has made us to be. This is your personality. This is the way you like to dress. This is the way you you communicate. God wants to use you inside of that. He doesn't want us to try to be somebody else. What if John the Baptist would have kind of looked around and gone, I don't really fit in around here. You know, the rabbis, they don't really look like this. They're teaching in the temple, and they're a lot more clean cut. I, I think I better go that route. I better go that mold. Remember his dad was a priest? What if he's like, man, to be effective, I need to be like dad. I need to do the priest thing. God's no, you're going to be a prophet. And you, you go with who I have made you to be and who I've created you to be. What was the location of John's ministry, the wilderness? There's a lot of strategies on where churches should be located. There's a lot of strategies for church planters. It's kind of like buying a house. They usually say, location, location, location. If you don't have a good location, you have no chance of of being able to, to reach people. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with strategies or with using logic. But more important than strategies and logic is relying upon God and trusting upon God. And maybe God wants to do something in the wilderness. Maybe he wants to bring people out to some place they would never go to, to hear the message of God. God's not in a box. God's not in a strategy. We have to be dependent upon the Lord. I think the most important thing about John is his attitude towards Christ. And he preached saying, There comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. This is John's attitude. He understood the supremacy of Christ. He says, I'm not worthy to even come and take off his sandal. He's expressing, I'm not even worthy to do the simplest act of service for Christ. That's the attitude God wants us to have. I understand who you are, Jesus, and I'm not even worthy to take out the trash in your name, to do the simplest thing for you. In verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This has got to make people think. 
They're getting dunked. They're getting baptized out here in the wilderness in the Jordan River. John's telling them, look, I'm immersing you in water, but Jesus is going to immerse you into the Holy Spirit. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ brings us into the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the Spirit-filled life where we're immersed in the Spirit. We're completely dunked in the Spirit of God. In verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What does Mark leave out? What does Peter not emphasize? The virgin birth? Jesus at the temple as a 12-year-old? We get Jesus as a man in the Gospel of Mark, not that the others aren't important, but Mark is not focusing on those things. Jesus is already in Nazareth, which is just a brief distance from the Sea of Galilee. He's hanging out in the northern region, and he comes all the way down to the southern region, down by the city of Jericho. Jesus did not get baptized by the Sea of Galilee or the Jordan River in that section of Israel. If you go on an Israel tour, most all of the baptisms happen right off of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. That's cool. It's just not where Jesus got baptized. Not that God really matters. It matters to the Lord. You can even get baptized in Colorado. Isn't, that, isn't God good, right? But he wasn't baptized up there. He was, he was baptized in the wilderness where John the Baptist was doing his ministry. He makes the journey down to where John was. And immediately, notice that, that word. Coming up from the water he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son and whom I'm well pleased. Why was Jesus baptized? Was it that he was a sinner? Was he repenting of sin? Was he trusting the gospel? Absolutely not. That's the wrong understanding. Jesus never sinned. He wasn't being baptized to repent of sin. His baptism was all about submission to the Father. This is the beginning of his public ministry. This is where it's going to be made known that he's the Son of God. And how does he start it? By submitting to the Father. And in his baptism, he's saying yes to the plan of the Father. He's saying yes to the crucifixion. He's saying yes to this road of suffering that the Father has for him. Also, he's identifying with us. Again, not that he's ever sinned, but he's going to ask us to be baptized, and he's never going to ask us to do something that he hasn't already done. So maybe you're wrestling with, hey, should I get baptized or not? You should. If you know Christ as your Savior, you should. Because Christ asks you to, he commands you to, and he was baptized, and he's identifying with us in that way. So submission to the Father, identification with us. The baptism of Christ is recorded in all four of the Gospels. It shows us the, the priority of it. We also see the mystery of the Trinity here, don't we? The Son is submitting to the Father. The Spirit comes down like a dove. Maybe you've seen the, the symbol of a dove in Christian circles. You're like, what does that represent? It represents the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's empowering the Son, and then the Father is complimenting the Son. The voice comes from heaven, the audible voice of the Father. I would love to hear this. The Father's grinning 
He's saying, this is my loved son. World, I want you to know I love my son and I'm well pleased in him. I see his submission to me. I see his willingness to walk in in my plan and it pleases me. And that love that the father has for the son. We go on into verse 12. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. The spirit drove him to the wilderness. Why? Why would the spirit drive him to the wilderness? Because the nation of Israel was taken to the wilderness where they were tested. And so now Jesus is taken to the wilderness by by the Spirit, this time of isolation before his public ministry. Satan's an opportunist. He goes, ah, here's Jesus all alone out in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. I'm going to come and tempt him. The other Gospels tell us how Jesus overcame this temptation by the Word. He uses a tool that's available to us. Jesus didn't quote long sections of scripture. Last week we talked about Psalms 119. He didn't quote all of Psalms 119. Small sections of scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. Things that we can do. What's really interesting is every verse that Jesus quoted came from Deuteronomy, which was given to the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. He was meditating on that section of scripture. I'm in the wilderness, Israel is in the wilderness, I'm meditating upon this section of scripture, and then he's using it in that hour, in that moment of temptation. Hear this, this is so important. Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. He's a merciful high priest that has compassion upon us in our temptation so that we can come to him, to his throne room of grace, in the midst of temptation. We get to quote the word of God from our hearts, just like Jesus did, but also then to run to Jesus, going, Jesus, I know that you know what it feels like to be tempted, yet you didn't give in to the sin and the temptation, so I'm asking you for help. I'm asking you for strength. If we would remember that in the moment of temptation, if I would remember that in the the moment of temptation, isn't that encouraging? Jesus understands wilderness experiences, church. We talked about in Habakkuk, Habakkuk rejoicing no matter what the circumstance is. Do you feel all alone? Do you feel isolated? Do you feel attacked by the enemy? Jesus knows exactly what that's like. This was so agonizing for Christ, and he's so wiped out on the physical level that the angels come and minister to him. This shows us Jesus, the servant of God. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus in his humanity. Could you imagine being one of those angels? I was there when you created everything. When you spoke everything into existence. I was also there when you were born in Bethlehem. God in human flesh as a little seven pounder. I was there when the creator was dependent upon his creation. If Mary doesn't feed Jesus, he's not doing very well. Watching this all unfold, watching Jesus be baptized, this high point in Christ's life, hearing the voice of the Father, 
this is my boy. Then going out into the wilderness and being tempted. And then the angel comes and ministers to him and strengthens him. I don't know if you found this to be true, but a lot of times the best experiences spiritually are then followed by the greatest attack, aren't they? We submit to the Father. We get to that place. We're saying, Jesus, I want you to have control of my life. The Father's speaking his love into us. And we're like, oh, this is so good. I'm the child of God. Rejoicing. And before we know it, we're right in the midst of a spiritual attack. Satan's there to try to discourage us. I think we, we find that in our lives as well as the life of Christ. Now, after John was put in prison, John didn't expect this. He didn't expect this to be the outcome of his ministry, but he was put in prison and he was ultimately killed. He was martyred. So after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Doing ministry in the Galilee region, he sets up his ministry headquarters, if you would where he spends the most time, most of the events that we read of Christ's life are found in the Galilee region. And what is he doing? He's declaring the gospel. He's declaring the kingdom of God. Here's the message of Christ. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why does he say the time is fulfilled? Because the Old Testament's saying, here comes the Messiah. The anointed one is coming. God is sending his son. And here's Jesus, and he's saying, the time is fulfilled. This is the point that the Old Testament was referring to. Just like John the Baptist, now Jesus says what? Repent, turn from your sin, change your mind, change your direction, experience that conviction of sin, but then what? Believe in the gospel, trust the gospel. We know from 1 Corinthians what the gospel is from God's perspective. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the good news. Trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to look at Jesus calling four of his disciples. Simon and Andrew, and James and John. Two different sets of brothers. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Amen. The Sea of Galilee is a large body of water with hills, mountains that surround it. It's a beautiful setting. Peter is known as Simon. God's the one that gives him the name Peter. Simon and Andrew have spent their life on the Sea of Galilee. This is where they've grown up. This is what they've spent the majority of their days doing, fishing, casting their nets. But today is different. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. A few things to consider at the call of discipleship. What's at the heart of this? Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And it's invitation. He gives an invitation to Peter and to Andrew, these brothers who are casting their nets. He says, I want you to follow me. They would understand what this meant because 
in their culture, in their time, there was apprenticeship, what we kind of know to be apprenticeship. And it was basically come and do life with me, learn from me, do what I do. Rabbis would train this way. You're invited into their life and you follow them. They understood what Jesus was saying and the invitation that he was given. This is what I want you to hear tonight is this invitation's personal. God knows us by name. He knows you by name. He knows me by name. And he's giving us a personal invitation. He's saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to come and follow me, which is incredible that God would give that to us. A lot of times in our society, we're just a number. How many times do you make a phone call and they say, what's your social security number? You've just started high school, back up in high school, back up in college, and you you get a number. You're not a number to God. You're not just someone in a large room tonight with a lot of other people. He knows you. And he's saying, look, I want you to follow me. I'm giving that, that invitation to you. After the invitation, then comes submission. These men have to take Jesus up on the offer, and they get that it's going to cost them something. There's going to be sacrifice. To be the follower of Jesus Christ means that we have to be willing to go wherever he goes and does do whatever he does. They're going to have to leave their fishing at this point, and they're willing to submit to this. They're willing to, to follow me. The very nature of discipleship means that he leads and I follow. Our dog, her name's Lady Lou. She's a Newfoundland. Uh, may not be familiar with Newfoundlands. They're a large breed. In the story, Peter Pan, the original storybook, the kids have a Newfoundland. They're great with kids. She weighs about 165 pounds. She, she's going to be nine years old in January. She's really starting to, to slow down. But when she was a puppy, we did some dog training with her, and our older two daughters were pretty little, Eileen and Wyatt hadn't come along yet. And the dog trainer said, look, you better get control of this dog. Because she's so big, if you don't get her under control, she's going to knock your kids over and really hurt them. Like, if you've got bare feet and she steps on your feet, you're feeling it. You're like, Lady Lou, I did not appreciate you stepping on my feet, right? And so there was very important in the training of Lady Lou to establish what? She's not the leader. And she's going to have to follow. And even with little Hannah, her learning, Hannah's not, you know, little anymore, but she was young then, that she'd have to listen to Hannah as well. So we've got pictures of Hannah, like being three years old, walking this big Newfoundland on the leash, you know. (laughs) And and Hannah learned to to be able to give commands to to Lady Lou, and Lady Lou listens to, to, to Hannah. And I think a lot of times in our relationship with the Lord, we get our wires crossed, don't we? He's God. He's the king of kings. He's Lord. And he doesn't say, okay, here's a negotiation. I'm concerned about your feelings. And you've got a great point of view. And sometimes I'm going to do what you want. Like, this is one way. You either follow or you don't. You either submit to my authority or you don't. You either surrender to me or you don't. This is a call and a response that Jesus gives to us every day. I wrestle with whether I'm going to submit to the Lord every day. And the joy is found in surrendering. Yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Think about the incredible knowledge that these men have of Jesus that others don't because they were willing to follow, because they were willing to risk. 
It's always worth it, wherever Jesus wants to take us. But we have to be willing to follow. We have to be willing to walk in submission to the Lord. But it goes on and it says, I will make you become fishers of men. It's transformation. If we follow Jesus Christ, he'll transform us and he'll change us. That's what I love about the disciples. They weren't perfect men. They had weaknesses, selfishness, sin. But we see as they spent time with Jesus, their lives were transformed. And Jesus made them into something that they weren't prior. That's encouraging to us. The group that Jesus chose to be his 12 disciples is not who we would choose. The rabbis weren't going to the Sea of Galilee and getting fishermen to be the next teachers in the synagogues. They would go to their seminaries. They would go to their places of education. The disciples, when God was using them in the book of Acts, what did they say? You're unlearned and untrained men. That was a polite way of saying, you guys smell like fish. But they went on to say, we can tell that you have been with Jesus. Jesus transformed their life. 1 Corinthians puts it this way, God uses the weak and the foolish things to confound the wise. Maybe you're saying, I'm a fisherman, God can't use me. I don't have this intellect, God can't use me. I don't have this education, God can't use me. It doesn't matter. God wants to use us no matter what. If you've got an education, praise the Lord. God wants to use you. If you don't have an education, praise the Lord. God wants to use you. He took fishermen to say, look, I can change anybody's life who's willing to follow me. It's the transformation that he brings. The next thing that we see of the call of discipleship is mission. These men are called into mission. Follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. They got the analogy. I've spent my whole life catching fish. Now I'm going to catch men. As we follow Christ, we're going to get his heart and we're going to care about what he cares about. And you know what he cares about? Whether people are saved or not. He came so that people would be saved. He hasn't changed his mission. So many times when I think of this verse that I've just read, the only thing that I hear is follow me. And I tend to not focus on the rest. And that is very important. Follow Jesus Christ. Nothing happens if we don't follow Jesus Christ. But following Jesus Christ and having a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ isn't just for me and him to hang out all the time. And sometimes I think that's what we think it is. Okay, Jesus, you've saved me. I want to follow you. This is great. It's just you and me. This is great. It's just you and me. This is great. It's just you and me. Oh, no, it's not just you and me. God's saying, look, I I want you to reach out. I want you to invest in others. I want to use your life to cause other people to know me, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And that's what the disciples are learning to do. And that's what God is causing us to learn as well. Maybe we've forgotten the mission as we're following Christ. Oh yeah, the whole point is to know him so that I can give him away. To know him so that I can be able to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Now we see James and John quickly. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Immediate obedience in Andrew and Simon. When he'd gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
who were in the boat mending their nets. Why does God tell us that Peter and Andrew were casting their nets and James and John were mending their nets? Because it's indicative of the ministries that they would have. It's not just a detail. Peter would be an evangelist who was used to bring many into the kingdom of God. He was casting his nets. It was foreshadowing the ministry that Peter would have. John, though, would become, not at first, but he would become the apostle of love. And as you read 1 John, what's God doing? He's mending your hearts. Mending your hearts. John would be used by the Lord to mend people's souls. They're mending their nets, verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. James and John come from a fairly wealthy family, wealthy enough to have servants. At the trial of Christ, John's family was known to the point where John was able to get into the trial. So he had a pretty well-known family, a pretty, pretty wealthy family. And what do they do? Both these brothers together, they leave the family business, they leave the wealth, and they start following Jesus Christ. They're up for the adventure that God would call them on. I love it when God calls families and families respond at the same time. My parents have got a really cool testimony. They both grew up in unsaved families, living in Arizona pretty early in their marriage. They grew up in the Northwest. They would get together and play cards with some of their neighbors. And these neighbors were a little bit older. They'd play pinochle. These neighbors invited them to go to a Bible study at the Catholic church that was in the middle of the week. This was perfect for my parents because my mom grew up devout Catholic. My dad became a Catholic to marry my mom, right? This Bible study was born-again believers that were reaching out inside of the Catholic church. At the end of the Bible study, they break up men, they break up women, they give opportunity for the men and the women to receive Christ as their Savior. Unbeknownst to each other, my mom and my dad both received Christ at the same moment, independently of each other, but yet in unison. God called them at the same time, and they responded at the same time. Made all the difference in their lives, and eventually in my brother and I's life, that would come later. And it's so beautiful when God calls brothers, and he says, bam, why don't you come serve me? And they're like, yeah, well, let's do it. James and John had that biological bond, now they have that bond in Jesus Christ. I love it when married couples hear that call of God. They're like, yeah, let's go serve Jesus. Bam, they, they do it together. Whole families. We've got Philip in the book of Acts. He's got four daughters, and it says all four of them prophesied. I think that's God's heart to call families. It's just whether or not the whole family will respond in that way. So as we close tonight, hear the words of Jesus, the words of Christ, follow me and respond. Follow me. I want to give out a little bit of a challenge to some of you youth that are right over here, high schoolers. Can I get your guys' attention? I see you. I'm glad you guys are in here. Just because you've been in church your whole life doesn't mean you're following Christ. And I know you guys are having a great conversation over there, and I hope you're enjoying it, but I hope you'd hear this. Jesus is calling you tonight to follow him.
And that's different than going to church. And it's different than growing up in a Christian family. It's you standing up and saying, I hear Jesus. And I hear what he has for me. And I want to follow him. Maybe you've been coming to church as an adult for years and years and years. And to some level you enjoy it. Or maybe you despise it. But you have never decided to follow Jesus Christ. This is way more than coming to church. This is hearing the voice of Jesus. He knows me. He loves me. He created me. He has every right to all of my life. I'm going to follow him. Maybe you've never been to church. And you came tonight and you're like, what in the world did I get myself into? The music was pretty cool, but this guy just won't shut up. You know, he just won't stop talking. Jesus loves you. He died for you. You need to turn from your sins, believe the gospel, receive that forgiveness of sin, and make that choice to follow Jesus Christ. I don't follow Jesus perfectly. There's failure in my life that's difficult for me to work through. But I got to tell you this, that it is such a joy to follow Christ. The days that I do follow Christ, so rewarding. If you're wondering, man, what's life all about? It's about following Christ and being used by the Lord. Maybe you've been following the Lord, but you've lost sight of the mission. He wants to make you fishers of men. He wants to have you care about the lost, to care about people, to love people, to see people come into the kingdom of God. So as we continue in worship, We're going to move into a time of worship. The worship team's going to lead us in worship, and let's wait upon the Lord. And if you need to respond, please respond. Ministry team's going to be here in the front. Jesus called these guys publicly. He said, look, you right now, in the midst of your business, imagine Jesus walking up into your business and saying, you, follow me. Like, okay, let's do this. And if you need to respond, respond right now. Don't wait, immediately. If you need to be saved, come be saved. Someone will pray with you. If you want to make that decision to follow Christ, come right now. Say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. If you've walked away from the Lord and you need to come back, come back. If you forgot the mission, come and receive prayer. But as the Holy Spirit's touching your heart, you respond. So let's stand together, let's pray, and move into this time of worship. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you died for us and you rose again and that you call us to follow you. Thank you for reminding us of this call. And as we spend time in worship, may there be freedom in worship. May you continue to speak to us. And may we respond to you in the ways that you're challenging us. In Jesus' name, amen.